The reading is from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. Please do keep your Bibles open uh, at Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking back and forth uh, through the chapter. Uh, before I begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for creation. Thank you that we can sing and dance to worship you, even though I'm still out of breath from it. Thank you that... You have written the, the account of creation in Genesis so that we can study it. And Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts to hear your truth? Amen. <clears throat> so uh, just over a week ago, uh, I knew exactly what I was going to say in this sermon. Um, and, then, and then last week at the nine o'clock service, uh, Brian preached to us on days two and three, sorry, on one, two and three. And, and as part of that sermon, there was just a little 
throwaway comment, a single sentence, just a, a thought to chew over, and it has been an absolute earworm for me. It's dug itself in, um, and I have not been able to shake this thought. And I've sat down at my desk time and again and said, God, could you please just take this thought out so I can focus on finishing off my sermon and its remaining? So I'm taking that as, a, as, 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 a, as an inc inclination that God wants me to have a look at this thing. And so I've started reading other books, turning back to my college notes to try and understand what that thought is. And as a result, I've had to rewrite about half of this sermon. Also, as a result, if I get a little bit overexcited uh, towards the end, please forgive me in advance. But let's dive into the passage. So right at the very beginning, verse 2, a couple of weeks ago, Simon showed us this phrase, formless and empty. Before creation began, the earth was formless and empty. And this phrase rhymes in Hebrew. We've heard it a few times. Tohu vavohu, formless and empty. Then through his big creative acts in days one, two, and three, God creates form. Space, time, shape, structure are made. So on day one, God creates the, the, the structures and, and time of day and night. Day two, God creates the structures and space of skies and seas. And day three, God creates the structures and spaces of land, including vegetation. So as we join today in verse 14, day three has just come to an end. There is structure and there is space. So things are no longer formless, but they are still empty. So now, in days four, five, and six, God repeats the same pattern, revisiting each space that he made on the previous three days, this time addressing their emptiness. So day four is about populating the space that was made on day one. So sun, moon, and stars are created to live in the space of day and night. Day five is about populating the space that was made on day two, fish and birds, to live in the space of sea and sky. And then day six is about populating the space that was made on day three, animals and humans to live on the land. Now, we're saving humans for next week when Simon will preach to us again. Uh, I'm glad that he is going to deal with that. But today we will cover animals but I want us to take a moment to think about this pattern that the author has created. It seems, through the use of rhyme, through the use of repeating pattern, that the author is taking trouble to highlight this pattern. And it would appear that this is about more than just uh, attractive prose, although it is that. There's a real beauty to it. I think that these days follow such a close pattern because there is a message to be found there. I think that the person that put pen to paper to write Genesis wants us to recognize through this repeating rhythm that there is something that unites all of the citizens of God's creation. From celestial bodies to aquatic, aerial, terrestrial life, there is one thing that makes us all alike. Hold that thought. I'll come back to it. So let's look individually at what is created on each day. Now, I love a fact. The weirder the fact, the more unexpected the fact, the better. 
Um, I wrote out all the facts that excited me about astronomy and then about marine life and then about bird life and then about animals, and um, it would have taken about three hours to tell you them all. So I'm just going to throw a couple of my favorite facts in there. Please do bear with me if they're a little bit weird, but they excite me. So on day four, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. Um, the, the scale of this creation is astounding. We, we've sort of moved from the land, a mountain here and there, to the entire cosmos being created on day four. And, and to try and understand the difference of scale that God suddenly turns to operate to is, is mind-boggling. One of my favorite um, understanding, ways to understand that scale is that if the sun were a peanut... Um, this is a nut-free church, so fear not, it's an imaginary peanut. Um, then the earth would be the tiniest grain of salt on that peanut. But to understand how close the next nearest star is to us in relation to this peanut, it would be in Paris. The, the, uh, the, the cosmos is so enormous that God suddenly turns to operate at this scale and then turns back to the detail of fish and birds. But I find it odd that the sun and the moon are not named here. If, if we look throughout the creation account, everything else has got names. The nouns are used, night, day, land, sea, fish, birds. Everything else is named. Now, the author of Genesis definitely had words for sun and moon at that time. So if you remember Joseph's dream, for example, later on in Genesis, he dreamed, I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to me. But it's like he's made a point, sorry, he, the author has made a point of not naming sun and moon here. Here's what cleverer people than me think. In many, many cultures around Israel, the sun and the moon were either considered to be major gods or demigods or residences of a god, and they were worshipped, and they had godly names, which were both the name of the god and the name of the thing. So, for example, in Egypt, Ra was the name of the sun god, but also the word for sun. There was no distinction between the divinity and the object. But the author of Genesis wants us to make no mistake at all. He wants us to be so clear that there is one God, and that is Elohim, that he deliberately omits the words sun and moon, just in case we, reading it later, think that sun and moon are the names of gods. He wants us in no doubt whatsoever that these objects, amazing and incredible and powerful as they are, are created things, built to serve the purposes of the Lord Almighty and to work within the functions that he created them for. Because along with the stars, God has created sun and moon with function. Verse 14 tells us the reason that God's created these is to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, days and years. Once again, reinforcement that sun and moon are not divine. They don't decide when the sacred times happen. They just serve God to highlight his sacred times. Everything that takes place in the world in relation to time is 
interwoven with these creations of God. So the rising of the sun defines our circadian rhythms. The movement of the moon creates the ocean's tides. The position of the stars in the night sky tells the farmer when they should sow their crops, millennia before the invention of calendars. Everything that God has created, serving its created purpose. And God saw that it was good. On day five, God fills the spaces that he made on day two, the oceans and skies, with the creatures that live in both fish and birds. Well, not just fish, but marine life. God said, let the water teem with living creatures. And teem it did. To date, humans have discovered nearly a quarter of a million different species of marine life. But the scientific consensus is there are probably at least two million more species to still be discovered. And and the difference in scale of this life is mind-boggling too. So you're probably aware that the blue whale is the largest animal on the planet. It's so big that its tongue is larger than an elephant and its heart the size of a small car. But when we get small... This is where I'm really excited. The sheer number of life forms in the water is overwhelming. So this is um, a single droplet of ocean water under a microscope. If we include microorganisms that are too small to be picked up even by powerful microscopes, there might be up to a million life forms in one drip of seawater. And once again, the function of God's creation is astounding. Those submicroscopic life forms, phytoplankton, that's believed to provide more than half of the world's oxygen coming from these things that we can't even see that God has filled the ocean with. God saw that it was good. Let the birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky, We know of 18,000 different species of birds. And what stuns me about birds is just how purpose-built they all seem to be. So you may know that almost all birds have hollow bones, which makes them lighter for flight, although still actually somehow stronger than mammals' bones because of the way that they're constructed. But did you know that certain seabirds, like puffins, don't have hollow bones? Why is that? It's to give them the perfect buoyancy to dive underwater and catch their food. If you have a one penny piece in your pocket, that is double the weight of the smallest bird on earth, the bee hummingbird, which is tiny in size and yet unique amongst all other birds in that it can fly backwards, perfectly designed for the way it feeds. And the fastest moving creature in creation, the peregrine falcon, capable of diving towards the earth at speeds of up to 200 miles per hour, perfectly controlling its descent to snatch its prey from the floor, which I have to confess is even more impressive to me because the last time I was moving at close to my top speed, I ran smack into a glass door because I wasn't paying attention. God created them to absolute precise perfection. And he saw that they were good. On the sixth day, 
God created animals. I don't even know where to begin with the sheer glorious beauty of the animal kingdom that God has placed on the land. I could tell you that there are 20 quadrillion ants in the world today. That's, that's 20 million billion each one of them critical to life on earth by aerating soil, consuming decaying matter, distributing seeds throughout the ground, and providing food for many other animals. I could tell you that cows form friendships, in fact they have best friends, and that they like to play football if you were to toss a large ball to them. I could tell you that giraffes can hum, but they can only do it at night time, but that's how they communicate with each other. They hum to each other at night. I could tell you that a house flies buzz is in the key of F. Now, I don't know if any of those three are specifically functional. They may be, they may not be, but they are beautiful to me. My daughter would kill me if I didn't say something about cats as she is obsessed with them. So you are hereby notified, if she asks, that a lion's roar, which can be heard from five miles away, is unique to each lion. The precise signature and tone of the roar is distinguishable and traceable not unlike a human fingerprint. I mentioned earlier that there is one thing that unites every inhabitant that God has created, and that is beyond its function in the ecosystem. It's beyond its careful design. It's beyond its inherent beauty. And that thing shared by animals, birds, fish, sun, moon, and stars is our shared purpose of worship. Now, it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we humans are the only things called to worship God. After all, we are, we are sentient. We're capable of abstract thought. We are set apart by God. And more than all of this, we are capable of strumming G and C second on an acoustic guitar. But the pattern that the writer of Genesis 1 paints for us is that the entire created order points back towards the creator to worship and glorify him. Hear these words from Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. Praise the Lord. So this story told in this repeating pattern style on the fourth, fifth and sixth days of creation is giving us the first glimpse of how all creation is telling the same story, the story of God's love and glory and goodness. And I don't think it's a coincidence that our first introduction to animals, fish, and birds is as co-worshippers. So before in Scripture, words like rule and dominate and subdue are used later in this chapter. Long before permission is given to eat animals... That's to Noah after the flood, by the way. Long, long, long before the story becomes all about humans and about how we interact with God, before any of that, we are partners in praise. 
with the living creatures with whom we share this planet. Now, I wonder how that idea might affect the way we approach the questions that Sue asked in the video earlier. I wonder how this understanding of partnership, of being co-worshippers with all created things, might affect the choices that we make in our lives today. So I mentioned earlier that Brian uh, had made a throwaway comment that sent my whole week haywire. Thanks, Brian. Um, Brian said in, uh, in his sermon at the 9 o'clock uh, last week, I wonder what this chapter would feel like to an Israelite in exile in Babylon. A great thought. And we've spent time over the sermons so far wondering about the different genres of writing that Genesis 1 can fit into. And so far we've really understood that it, it fits in too many genres to even understand. It's poetic. It's uh, in some ways mythological because of the way the understanding was built. It's scientific before science was um, a thing. Um, it's narrative. It's worshipful. I want to offer another one. You see, the ancient Israelites were not alone in telling the story of how the universe came to be. More or less, every society in the world throughout time has, through oral tradition, told stories of what they believed happened in order to give us this world that we find ourselves on. So we have evidence of stories told by Sumerian people, Egyptian people, Greeks, Romans, Babylonians, and so on. The Babylonian story of creation goes like this. <clears throat> The god Apsu and the goddess Tiamat made other gods. Later, Apsu became distressed with these gods and he tried to kill them, but instead he was killed by the god Ea. Tiamat sought revenge and tried to kill Ea, but instead she was killed by Ea's son Marduk. Marduk split her body in half, and from one half he made the sky and from the other half he made the earth. Then Marduk, with Ea's aid, made mankind from clay and the blood of another slain god, Kingu. We don't know exactly when Genesis was written down. A lot of scholars think it was around about the time of the Babylonian exile. A time when the people of God were living as refugees under the headship and spiritual authority of Babylon. I wonder if it's useful for us to remember sometimes that telling this story has been an act of resistance. Imagine with me refugee families huddled together around a campfire in a foreign land. Psalm 139 talks of, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept as we remembered Zion. There is pain there. Grandparents still carrying the physical scars of the battle they lost all those years ago. Parents carrying the emotional scars of never having known a true home. Small children feeling confused and lost. But at the fire, gathered round, where there are no Babylonian overseers to hear, bringing the children in, and in a hushed voice, saying, let me tell you a truth. There is only one God. And all this, 
everything you see and everything you don't see was made by him. It's not the aftermath of some battle. He made it. He made it out of his unique creativity and love. Let me explain. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, all of those other stories, Babylonian, Greek, Roman, many other of those communicate an underlying truth. This world was forged in violence and in struggle for power. And I imagine that if that's your belief, coupled with human nature, it's even easier to submit to a personal worldview of the same thing. Why am I here? To struggle for power and win. After all, it's what the gods have demonstrated. But Genesis tells a different story. Now, God is full of power. Of course he is. But he uses that power for creativity. His creation is one of love and of beauty and goodness. Not some primordial battlefield where we as survivors need to fight for the scraps of what's left. A different story. And to some of us, sometimes telling that story is an act of resistance. An act of saying, I reject this narrative of life just being a struggle for power. And I wonder where do we in our lives feel the pressure of that competing worldview? So maybe you feel like the collateral damage from someone's power play. Maybe you are experiencing being dominated by someone else's insatiable need to win. Maybe even you sense this desire for power in your own heart and it's influencing your choices and relationships. If so, I invite you back to Genesis 1 this week. Go back and read. Hear the story that rejects that narrative. Ask God to show you the truth. That this world was not born of battle and struggle for power. And reject the idea that your life's story should be dominated by those same principles. And we, together with the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the sun, moon and stars and all of creation are placed here not to win, but to raise one single chorus together of joyful worship to our creator. Amen.